namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I thought I would begin um, today with the, that uh, passage from the Diganikaya, the long discourses about um, creation uh, or how the mind uh, is inclined towards a, a creator deity. Uh, so this is from the very first sutta in the Diga, the Brahmajala Sutta, uh, literally means the, the net of Brahma. And uh, Morris Walsh, who was the translator of this, um, uh, called this sutta, What the Teaching is Not. So the Brahma, in this respect, is a sort of comprehensive, or the net that catches everything. So it's a, a way of describing the um, uh, a, a net which catches all of the different kinds of wrong views. So this is this particular sort of mythic cosmological pattern. There are monks, some ascetics and Brahmins, who are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists, who proclaim the partial eternity and the partial non-eternity of the self and the world in four ways. On what grounds? There comes a time, monks, sooner or later, after a long period, when this world, the universe, contracts. At a time of contraction, beings are mostly reborn in the Abhasara Brahma world, and there they dwell, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And they stay like that for a very long time. So it's describing how when a, a, a universal contraction, when there's a, the universe is moving towards a big crunch, then most beings are in the uh, Abhasara Brahma realm or higher realms. So, According to this, we've all been there a few times. But the time comes, sooner or later, after a long period, when this world begins to expand. And in this expanding world, the expanding universe, an empty palace of Brahma appears. And then one being, from exhaustion of their lifespan or of their merits, falls from the Abhasara Brahma world and arises in the empty Brahma palace. And there he dwells, mind-made, feeding on delight, self-luminous, moving through the air, glorious. And he stays like that for a very long time. Then in this being who has been alone for so long, there arises unrest, discontent and worry. And he thinks, oh, if only some other beings would come here. And other beings, from exhaustion of their lifespan or of their merits, fall from the Abhasra world and arise in the Brahma palace as companions for this being. And there they dwell, mind made, and so on and so forth. And they stay like that for a very long time. And then, monks, that being who first arose there thinks, I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, ruler, appointer and orderer, father of all that have been and shall be. These beings were created by me. How so? Because I first had this thought, oh, if only some other beings would come here. That was my wish. And then these beings came into this, into this existence. But those beings who arose subsequently think, this friends is Brahma, great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, the all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, ruler, appointer and orderer, father of all that have been and shall be. That's all with capital letters at the beginning of those words. How so? We have seen that he was here first and that we arose after him. And this being that arose first is longer lived, more beautiful and more powerful than they are. And it may happen that, that some being falls from that realm and arises in this world. Having arisen in this world, he goes forth from the household life into homelessness. Having gone forth, he, by means of effort, exertion, application, earnestness and right attention, attains to such a degree of mental concentration that he thereby recalls his last existence, but recalls none before that. And he thinks, that Brahma, he made us, and he is permanent, stable, eternal, not subject to change the same forever and ever. 
But we, who were created by that Brahma, we are impermanent, unstable, short-lived, fated to fall away, and we have come to this world. This is the first case where, whereby some ascetics and Brahmins are partly eternalists and partly non-eternalists. So I thought I would share that with, with you all. So it's, uh, it's interesting that um, that kind of a model arose in India, and um, the, uh, the, the, the the uh, theistic models that uh, arose in the Middle East to have some sort of comparable, uh, say, expressions or, or ways of representing a creator deity. Um, so, but whether it's absolutely accurate or not, I can't say. But it does make uh, it does make sense, and uh, I thought it's a, it's a significant way that um that is presented there in the in the uh, sutta as a you know this is how particular views arise and then the, the other 62 kinds of, of view that are, are spelled out in the brahmajala sutta then the buddha also talks about the various causes and conditions the reasons that uh, the different views and perspectives arise in different people's minds so again if you're interested in, in where either uh, other people's views or your own views come from, then the Brahmajala Sutta's got a, a lot of interesting material in it. So, so going back to uh, the Dependent Origination book of Venerable Paiutos, um, uh, so we uh, had just gone through the four kinds of grasping, the kinds of upadana. So you had kamupadana, um, grasping or clinging to sense pleasure, and then the second one was dit upadana, ditti meaning, meaning views and opinions, so clinging to views and opinions. <clears throat> the third one is silapat upadana, so silapata uh, is the uh, conventions or uh, traditions and customs, rites and rituals and so forth. And then the fourth one is attavad upadana, so atta being self, vada the way, so the clinging to the way of the self, clinging to those ideas about who and what we are and our, and uh, our own personal story. So then to continue. These repercussions do not merely affect the individual. Uh, the conflict and suffering extends outwards, causing social conflict. All social problems created by human beings stem from a life of ignorance and attachment. So he's saying that those habits of, of clinging and attachment don't just affect our own life, but they, they have a repercussions, they have a ripple effect on the lives of uh, everyone that we live with. Um, there was also the um, uh, uh, the, um, the French uh, philosopher. Um, what's his name? Um, Forgetting his name now. Um, come back to me in a moment. Who said uh, back in the 18th century, um, all human problems stem from the inability of a man to stay happily in a room by himself. Pascal, Pascal, that's it. Blaise Pascal, thank you. Pascal, all human problems arise from. Not notice, man, not woman, so <laughs> but uh, a man not being able to stay and uh, be content in a room by himself. Can I kind of say that's pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Blaise Pascal. Yeah. The detailed presentation of dependent origination outlines the origin of a life of suffering. It outlines the origin of a sense of self which inevitably results in suffering. Breaking the chain of dependent origination is to end a life of suffering, to eradicate all suffering arising from a self, quote-unquote. This leads to a life of wisdom, non-attachment, freedom, and harmony with nature. A life of wisdom of direct knowledge of the truth entails deriving benefit from one's relationship to nature, which is equivalent to living in harmony with it. To live in harmony with nature is to live freely and with non-attachment, an escape from craving and grasping. And a life of non-attachment relies on a knowledge of conditionality, along with an appropriate relationship to things. So, uh, and that's uh, worthy of of noting, um, you know, the language I, I recognise is, is a bit technical here, but uh, when it's saying in harmony with nature, uh, the key insight or the key sort of support for that that harmony is recognising what we experience uh, is a result of the laws of cause and effect. This has a cause. This is the result. You know, this has a cause. This is the result, and um, that. When we see things in terms of the, of the laws of causality, if you remember right at the beginning, he points out how that 
the um, the principle of idapachanyata, the the this that conditionality is you know that's the the very center of uh, or the very heart of dependent origination. So the more that we can appreciate moment by moment that what we experience is um, say the the effects of the laws of cause and effect functioning, then we're training the mind to see things in terms uh, of nature rather than in terms of our own preferences, our own fears, our own desires, our, our own uh, opinions, and so forth. So even though causality is not a particularly exciting subject for most people, ooh, causality, ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> most of our minds don't sort of light up when we hear about cause and effect. It is uh, extremely well worth uh, experience, uh, sort of bringing um, attention to that uh, that pattern of experience, because it's uh, um, the, uh, the 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 way that we develop a quality of of balance and 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 genuine peacefulness, ease in life, is through that um, reflection on on uh, causality, cause and effect. So. When we do the reflections on the four Brahma Viharas, uh, the loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity or serenity, you know, the for loving kindness, uh, may I abide in well-being. May may everyone abide in well-being. Uh, for compassion, uh, may all beings be released from all suffering. For mudita, for sympathetic joy, may all beings not be parted from the good fortune they have attained. So those three all have a particular tone. The fourth one is a reflection on causality. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I'll be the heir. So equanimity or serenity is supported by that reflection on, on cause and effect. And that if the more that we can see that the, uh, the, the patterns of life as, as they're experienced are based upon uh, the, the, that natural law, then there's a you're freeing the heart from that sense of, of wrongness. Or I want it to go this way. I don't want it to go that way. <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the uh, one of Chao's, um, uh he was brilliant at coming up with these little nuggets of wisdom. And he said, uh, "Everyone likes to create. Everyone wants happiness, but nobody likes to create the causes of happiness. Nobody wants suffering, but everyone likes to create the causes of suffering." Oh. <laughs> So also worthy of, of sitting on and reflecting on for some time. Buddhist teachings do not recognize a supernatural entity existing above nature and having power over it. If something were to exist beyond nature, to transcend nature, then by definition it could have no influence over nature. Whatever is involved in nature is a part of nature. Natural phenomena exist according to, to causes and conditions, they do not arise haphazardly. All amazing occurrences that appear as miracles or marvels arise from and proceed according to causes and conditions. We call these events miracles because the causes and conditions remain hidden. As soon as the causes and conditions are known, the sense of wonder disappears. The terms supernatural or preternatural are merely ways of speaking. They do not refer to some entity that exists apart from nature. A related subject is the distinction, distinction between man, or humanity, and nature. The expressions man and nature, or humans control nature, are simply figures of speech. In fact, human beings are one part of nature, and humans can control nature only to the extent that they exist as one condition within it, influencing subsequent conditions and giving rise to particular results. What is unique in the case of human interaction is the involvement of mental conditions, including volition, and therefore the term creation, quote-unquote, is used for human activities. But all the elements in the act of creation are, without exception, conditional factors. Human beings are unable to create anything out of thin air or in isolation, as somehow separate from the conditional process. When humans understand the requisite conditions leading to desired results, they enter the process as one determinant factor shaping the other conditions to reach a desired end. So before going on, any, any questions? Either about the um, reading from the Diga or any of that initial part about uh, humanity and nature? Okay, to continue. 
There are two stages to successful interaction. The first is knowledge, and the second is to act as a condition for subsequent conditions. The initial stage, equivalent to wisdom, is essential. With wisdom, one can engage with things according to one's wishes. A wise engagement with things entails benefiting from one's relationship to nature, or even controlling nature, and this benefit extends to a person's relationship to both material things and the mind. Because human beings and nature exist in a mutual relationship, to live wisely is to live in harmony with nature. With wisdom, one has control over one's mental faculties, control over one's mind, one has control over one's self. So that, uh, or control over this particular stream of, of, of activities. Um, when it says has control over, I would say it's, there's, there's control, uh, of the attitude towards mental events, um, that we can, um, the, you know, the things that we see or hear or smell or taste or touch or even the, the, the thoughts or images, moods that, that, uh, arise according to, the causes and conditions they, they they pop up they come into being and so that the, uh, many of those things are not under personal control um, they they arise according to just uh, you know memory or associations or perceptions but the attitude is what the um, with spiritual practice and, and the, the development of meditation and mindfulness that's where there is control that the attitude towards what arises uh, is uh, is uh, say something that that we can have control over. So even if the mind is experiencing um, sort of uh, you know, strange moods or hallucinations, um, uh, uh, whatever, then you know the, there can be a skillful attitude towards that. Even if you can't control exactly what you're perceiving, so, uh, I often give the example. Speaking of streams. So uh, I was when I was living at the Mahayagiri Monastery during the winter retreats. It's very very rainy in the winter time there. There are about um, sixty or eighty inches of rain uh, per year. Most of it falls between October and, and April. So you get a, a lot of a, a lot of rain falling in the winter time. And the kuti that I was staying in, uh, there was a stream that that formed because of all the rain and, and flowed past the the door of the kuti. And uh, at this time, I, I had uh, a, a, um, a course of, t- uh, of Tibetan medicine that, that I was taking, and um, the uh, to help me with the melanoma that I was recovering from, and um, this medicine had the particularly in strong psychological effects. Uh, so I, I was experiencing auditory hallucinations from the the sound of the stream flowing past my door. So it was producing, uh, it made my mind produce music, but it was different every day. So that um, it was, I know I could tell it was. It's just water flowing down the hill. But one day it would be like a Beethoven symphony. And I can't write music, you know. I, I couldn't read music, but it's, it sounded like you know a Beethoven symphony. Uh, next day it would be Led Zeppelin. Next day it would be Wagner. And and you know, and if if I could write music, I would have been able to sort of. Know, this is a new Beethoven symphony or a new piece by Wagner or, or Led Zeppelin. And it was quite distinct. I could sit there for long periods of time and just hear this whole symphonic piece of unfolding, doing its thing. And I know there is not an orchestra out there. That is just the water flowing down the hill. But I could very distinctly hear all this this music playing. Um, So it was pretty intense medicine. (laughs) But... uh, uh, I mean, the, the, I, I, I did, um, it did, it did do a good job, and the, the, after a couple of years of, of treatment, and I'm not taking that stuff all the time, but that was, that was, a, a, <laughs> that was a particular uh, sort of a medication I was taking for a little while. But yeah, it was, it was a really, you know, I couldn't control what I was hearing, but I was hearing it very distinctly. So it was, it was a, a, a very. Um, well-formed perception, but there was no orchestra, there was no rock band playing outside my, my kuti, there was no electricity <laughs> to plug into, and no orchestra, but it was just the, you know, the sound of the, of the water flowing was picked up by my, my brain and turned into uh, Wagner or Beethoven and such like. So that um, when, he, when he says we have control over mental faculties, I would say the attitude is like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that sounds like Beethoven. <laughs> the attitude can, we have control over, but the actual perceptions or, or moods or feelings and such like, uh, 
we, we can't always control. Or if you've got an injury, you know, you've got a physical pain coming into the, the system, then that, that's a, a different story. You know, that uh, we can't just make pain go away by, uh, by thinking about it, but you can control the attitude towards that. A life of wisdom has two dimensions. Internally, wise individuals are calm, clear, and joyous. When encountering pleasant objects, they are not seduced or reckless. When separated from delightful objects, they are not upset or despondent. They do not entrust their happiness to material things by allowing them to govern their lives. And, externally, they are fluent and agile. They are prepared to engage with things appropriately and reasonably. There are no inner attachments or fixations that cause obstruction, prejudice or confusion. The following words by the Buddha demonstrate the difference between a life of attachment and a life of wisdom. So that's a, a very neat, sort of succinct um, so a definition of a, a mind that is, uh, that is wise and, and awake. So internally, um, you do not entrust your happiness to material things by allowing them to govern your life. Um, when there's something pleasant, not seduced or, rec or reckless, not so carried away. Uh, when, when there's something unpleasant or you're separated from delightful, delightful objects, not feeling a sense of lack, not upset or despondent. And then in terms of adapting to, con to conditions and situations uh, around us, they are fluent and agile. And so uh, adaptable. You know, I like to say um, adaptability is the key to happiness. And so that's... Uh, that's uh, being fluent and agile, being able to, to work with conditions um, as they are found. They are prepared to engage with things appropriately and reasonably. There are no inner attachments or fixations that cause obstruction, prejudice or confusion. So before I, I read the sutta, any questions on that? Yes. Okay. So this is the arrow, the Salla Sutta which is uh, a very um, Im important, uh, significant teaching. It's um, in the uh, Connected Discourses the, um, uh, about the uh, six senses, the Salayata Navaga, the Sixth Sense Collection. And it's Sutta number six called The Arrow. So this is very significant and uh, good to become acquainted with. This is like the, the, um, the imagery that the Buddha uses of a, of a soldier on a battlefield being shot by uh, an arrow or, uh, or two arrows. Bhikkhus, the uninstructed worldling feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. The instructed noble disciple, too, feels a pleasant feeling, a painful feeling, and a neither painful nor pleasant feeling. In this case, Bhikkhus, what is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. So that's a very standard sort of uh, way of defining um, different uh, different human beings. One who's um, an uninstructed worldling, a putujana, and a, a uh, uh, one who is um, seka, one who is um, an instructed noble disciple, is uh, one who is sort of understands things more skillfully. More completely. Because when the uninstructed worldling is contacted by a painful feeling, he grieves and laments. He weeps, beating his breast, and becomes distraught. He feels two feelings, bodily feeling and mental feeling. Suppose an archer were to strike a man with an arrow, to shoot someone with an arrow, and then strike him afterwards with a second arrow, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by two arrows, so too, when the uninstructed worldling is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels two feelings, a bodily one and a mental one. Being contacted by that painful feeling, he harbors aversion towards it. When he harbors aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency, the anusaya, to aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. Being contacted by painful feeling, he seeks delight and sense pleasure. For what reason? Because... The uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than by sense pleasure. So that's how we, we operate in an ordinary, sort of everyday sort of reactionary mode, that if, we, if we're uncomfortable or feeling something unpleasant, we look for something that's pleasant. We look for an alternative. We want to get away from that painful feeling and find something that's, 
that's a, a, um, a pleasant distraction or to replace that painful feeling with a pleasant one. The uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than by sense pleasure. When he seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling lies behind this. He does not understand, as it really is, the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. When he does not understand these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feelings lies behind this. If he feels a pleasant feeling, uh, he feels it as one bound. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it as one bound. If he feels a neither painful nor pleasant feeling, he, uh, he feels it as one bound. Um, so tied to that, that feeling. This because is called an uninstructed worldling who is bound by birth, aging and death. And the word binding is a sanyuta. Yuta um, is, is connected like um, the, um, the Dhamma Yuta order connected to, to Dhamma. Uh, sanyuta is bound to a, uh, to perception. An uninstructed worldling who is bound by birth, aging and death, who is bound by sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, who is bound by suffering, I say. So the little analysis of that, um, so that uh, so the uh, when he seeks delight in sensual pleasure, the, un the underlying tendency to lust or pleasant feeling lies behind this. When he harbors aversion towards the painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling lies behind this. And then when he does not understand things, the underlying tendency to ignorance um, in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling lies behind this. So those underlying tendencies to aversion, to uh, negativity, biapada, to, um, to sense pleasure, to karma raga, and then to um, uh, ignorance, avicca, those are the um, underlying tendencies uh, are all sort of activated in the, uh, for the, uh, the, um, the uninstructed worldling's mind. Uh, there's a reactive habit based on uh, aversion, uh, craving, and, uh, and ignorance. Because when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he does not grieve or lament. He does not weep, be beating his breast and become distraught. He feels one feeling, a bodily feeling, not a mental feeling. Suppose an archer were to strike a man with one arrow, but the second arrow would miss the mark, so that the man would feel a feeling caused by one arrow only. So too, when the instructed noble disciple is contacted by a painful feeling, he feels one feeling, a bodily one, not a mental one. Being contacted by that painful feeling, he harbors no aversion towards it. Since he harbors no aversion towards painful feeling, the underlying tendency to aversion towards painful feeling does not lie behind this. So that anusaya, that, uh, that underlying tendency, is not there. Being contacted by painful feeling, he does not seek delight in sensual pleasure. For what reason? Because the instructed noble disciple knows of an escape from painful feeling other than sensual pleasure. Since he does not seek delight in sensual pleasure, the underlying tendency to lust for pleasant feeling does not lie behind this. So he avoids that uh, anusaya of sense pleasure, karma raga as well. He understands as it really is the origin and the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of these feelings. Since he understands these things, the underlying tendency to ignorance in regard to neither painful nor pleasant feeling does not lie behind this. So that um, that third un uh, anusaya, the third underlying tendency for ignorance, is also not fed or, or strengthened. If he feels a pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels a painful feeling, he feels it detached. If he feels neither a painful nor pleasant feeling, he feels it detached. This because is called a noble disciple who is free from birth, aging and death, who is free from sorrow, lamentation, Grief, pain, grief, and despair, who is free from suffering, I say. This bhikkhu is the distinction, the disparity, the difference between the instructed noble disciple and the uninstructed worldling. So this uh, um, is a, a, a teaching that's both um, very significant in, in you know, sort of classical Buddhist practice, but also uh, uh, in the... Um, uh, modern day sort of different versions of mindfulness uh, mindfulness trainings and um, 
the like uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy uh, for depression, such like. So this is a, a much quoted sutta, also using the mind to work with chronic pain, um, and uh, the this teaching of the two arrows, um, uh, and that the second arrow is avoidable. So uh, one of the, the the succinct ways of of uh, uh, talking about this is that pain is unavoidable, but suffering is optional. It's a short version. Pain is unavoidable. If you have a body and a mind, then necessarily they're going to experience pain. But suffering on account of that, creating uh, aversion or desire for distraction and so on, that is that is optional. And um, that, uh, as the the way that is described here, knowing the the origin, the passing away, so the the samudaya and the the niroda, the origin and the passing away of a feeling, being able to watch. The changing nature of any kind of feeling that it's in a state of, of change is it's anicchata it's uh, you can know that the changing nature of it the gratification uh, that is asada is the pali word for gratification the danger or the liability the downside the, uh, is the adinava and those, those are, are a pair of qualities the asada and adinava and the escape is a nisarana so that the gratification of uh, say the, uh, with pleasant feeling, you know, this is uh, this is pleasant, but it, it, you know, it can't be owned, it can't be kept. It's, it's a sweet feeling, but uh, it's uh, it's not something that can be sustained or it can't permanently and completely please. And then the danger is, you know, if the mind grasps hold of this or tries to identify with it, it'll only disappoint. So the, and the escape is that very quality of wisdom, that quality of awareness that knows the arising and passing of any kind of feeling. So that's a, a pattern that's that's mentioned by the Buddha many many times: the origin, disappearance, gratification, danger, and escape, with respect to the six senses. And so that there's a, um, it's helpful to to be aware of that. So when when something is pleasant. Uh, uh, or that you, or, or the, and then, uh, well, this is a, this is a sweet feeling. This is, this is there's a gratifying quality to this. This is delicious. But then also its partner is Adinava, is the danger, um, the, the liability or the downside of the, the mind investing in that. Or, um, the gratification can be, say, if you're experiencing pain in, in your body when you're sitting for a long period of time. The gratification can be when you change your posture and you go, ah, oh, thank goodness that's over. That's, in, again, clinging to that gratification, the, the danger is uh, as soon as the other leg starts aching, or the, the pain comes back into that, uh, into the same place. Oh no, not that again! So that it's um, uh, a, uh, a helpful see, process to be aware of. That gratification, uh, the asada always has the adinava. If the mind grasps pleasure, then it's grasping pain as well. Uh, and if it's it's uh, hoping for something, then it's also grasping disappointment. And so the gratification, the, the and the danger, the asada and the adinava, and that uh, and knowing how that process works, being aware of that that kind of chemistry, that's the escape. That's uh, the, um, the essentially the the development of insight, and just knowing that um, pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neutral feelings arise and pass away. That's uh, the uh, the the nature of all feelings. So uh, also, I often, when talking about this, um, uh, I stress the fact that when we talk about the, the Four Noble Truths, the ending of Dukkha, the Dukkha Niroda, is not the ending of, it's nothing to do with the first arrow, it's all to do with the second arrow. So that uh, uh, the the ending of Dukkha doesn't mean having no headaches or no, no physical pain. Uh, it doesn't mean never having any uh, uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable feelings, but rather it's the 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 um, the second arrow is what is ending with the dukkha niroda. That's the 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 mind creating anguish, agitation around any particular uh, experience. And as I often put it, you know, if you if you've got an interest in Buddhism because you know, you want to stop feeling pain, you're in the wrong place. You know? That uh, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And so, also in when I'm talking about this and 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 explaining this principle of the two arrows, 
uh, I like to point out that the, you know, the Buddha in his old age had chronic back pain and uh, there's many, many instances where he'll say to Venerable Sariputta, or Venerable Ananda, Mahamogalana, or to uh, Venerable um, Mahakachana, uh, <coughs> he say, you know, Mahakachana, my, my back is paining me, the assembly is still awake, so you, know, you carry on giving them a Dhamma talk, I'm going to go and stretch my back and, and, and lie down. Um, and so that not only did he have physical pain, but he also took steps to do something to reduce the pain. He didn't create suffering around it, but he he also took uh, took whatever steps was needed to help his body to to be in a more comfortable and uh, uh, and balanced state. So I feel that's a very good example because people often feel that oh, well, this, uh, an enlightened being would never have any physical pain, would never have any illnesses, and and in, in Thailand there were when uh, uh, Ajahn Chah was was, was uh, seriously ill. They, oh, how can this happen to an enlightened being? He said, well, <laughs> and uh, you know, when Numpa Chak could still speak, he would say, well, how many times have I told you that you know, all beings, are, everything is, is impermanent and uncertain, and all beings are subject to aging, sickness, and death. And so um, it's, uh, you know, the, uh, the, whether the mind is enlightened or not, still the, the body is subject to illnesses and, and painful feeling. So that uh, that... Um, uh, uh, I think the, that example that uh, the, the Buddha experienced a lot of physical pain and then at the beginning of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta the discourse about the Buddha's last days uh, which I can ooh, happen, since I happen to have the Diga Nikaya here let's read that, Sutta number 16 um so the uh, um, early on in this in this discourse, let's see. Okay. It is evading me. It's not right at the beginning of the sutta. It is evading me, but um, well, never mind. So uh, uh, I'll I'll search it out. But uh, he says uh, my body is like an old cart held together with strings and straps. And it's only through uh, absorbing my mind into into the emptiness that uh, I can experience any kind of of comfort. But uh, it is uh, that particular passage is evading me. But um, it's it's also I feel significant when because um, the the, uh, the suit on the arrow only refers to physical pain. Um, uh, and uh, as a, uh, as uh, uh, as the theme of it, but it also applies to emotional pain. And uh, just as the the Buddha uh, had uh, physical pain, back pain, when he was quite old. Uh, similarly, there's a, uh, the uh, sutta that he gave at a place called Ukachela after Sariputta and Moggallana had passed away. Uh, and the the, uh, the Buddha said, uh, the, "This he's sitting in a in a, a group of monks out in the open in the, uh, at Ukachela, and he said, this assembly appears to me as empty uh, now that Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Mahamoggallana have reali- have reached uh, uh, realized uh, the parinibbana, 
they had passed away. And it was not empty for me earlier, but now it is. So that he's expressing a sense of uh, of um, grief or noticing it, even though there's a big crowd of uh, Sangha members, it feels like it's empty because Sariputra and Moggallana have passed away. And so to me that's also expressing a, that emotional tone of, of, uh, of uh, say, that he was uh, aware of uh, the that these people who had been his close friends and associates for so many years, they passed away, so that he felt that, he recognized that, and that comment is, is recorded there in the suttas, that uh, even amongst a big crowd of people, it feels empty, because these two great beings are, are no longer present. So, uh, and I feel that uh, that's with the, the teaching on the arrow, then it extends to emotional pain as well as physical pain, so that you can experience you know, grief or or sadness, disappointment, that that can arise, but you don't have to add anything to it. It's an emotion, uh, and it's it's got a painful quality to it. But you don't have to to uh, to uh, struggle with it or uh, identify with it or make it me and mine. But we can know that feeling of sadness or grief or or um, disappointment or whatever it might be. That uh, it can be there and and fully felt and known. But the, the mind doesn't have to argue against it or identify with it or make it into a personal possession. So this is a, a, a very uh, a very helpful teaching to take to heart, I would say. And when, it, when there is that, that of, uh, struggling, the second arrow is, is, is hit, like you, rest, you know, struggling with a physical pain or emotional pain, um, then to, to notice that, oh, that this, this feels like the second arrow. So can, can the second arrow be, be dodged? Can that be avoided? Can this, this physical pain or this emotional pain, can it just be known as it is? It, it feels this way. It's just got this quality. And the mind, uh, not being, uh, attached or identified to it in, in any way. And so it's a, a very helpful model to, to bear in mind. So, any thoughts, questions? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, basically, this how it is the future and expectations. Like it could be like small ways, so like something unpleasant feeling, and it's looking forward for it to be more, <coughs> or it's some unpleasant um, situation, like family situation, and it imagines that uh, I will create it the way that it would be heaven. So, like big plans for the rest of the life, mm-hmm. or small plans to uh, make something nice for yourself to replace pleasant feelings. So, basically, because I can't remember to stay with. Unpleasantness with how I create imagination. Exactly. Nice. So this is what's Yeah, exactly. As he said, the, the the uninstructed worldling only knows how to. Uh, the the only way that an uninstructed worldling um, knows to escape from painful feeling is by sense pleasure. You know, you you conjure up an idea of this wasn't here and if there was this instead. Then that would be great. If only I was somewhere else. Me somewhere else, finally happy and okay. You know, that uh, that that uh, the mind creates that and then tries to go and inhabit that imagined future. So you desire exactly either small ways or big ways. You know, that, that's exactly what drives it. So that that one sentence: the uninstructed worldling does not know of any escape from painful feeling other than by sense pleasure. That's kind of <laughs> it's uh, painfully accurate. I think, but, uh, and that. If we are, if we develop wisdom, and uh, there's the uh, instructed as an instru- instructed noble disciple, then there's different ways of handling painful feeling, and that the mind reckon that you, you, there's a, a learning that you can know it just as it is, not being a victim of it, not adding anything to it, not complaining about it, not feeling that something has gone wrong with life, that there's this painful feeling, just knowing here it is. This is this is. Uh, uh, what it feels like and then that there's a peacefulness even as you're feeling even not just with physical pain but emotional pain too you know you can 
you can have the tears running down your face and that the tears are flowing and the mind can go oh <laughs> this this is the this is the sadness of of loss it feels like this and even though it's painful it's completely peaceful and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it the mind is there's no sort of waiting for it to be over it's just it's like this in this moment it feels this way and the tears are running and uh this is the shape the the pattern of the the world at the moment is is exactly like this so there's emotional pain but no suffering around it like the the buddha with the the noticing the loss of sariputra and, and mogalana so if anyone is interested to look up that sutta um i researched it <coughs> that's what i did look up earlier so it's in in the sangyutta nikaya section 47 i think it's in the um uh satipatthana section 47 uh, sutta number 14 ukachela is the name of it any other thoughts questions yes um, does the does the detachment from the feelings uh, uh, does it not carry a risk of um uh creating a dualistic view of the self does, does it still remain non-dualistic it can do i mean if there's a a um uh, like an unskillful sort of dissociation that uh that it's a um it can be a sort of pushing away um, and that it's a it's a like a a, a kind of non-attachment but it's um it's sort of based upon a subtle feelings of aversion and negativity i don't want to feel that i don't don't want to know that i'm practicing non-attachment you know uh and but it's uh there's a, what they call vibhavatanna the desire to get rid of it's it's uh, it's still a, a um uh a quality of self in there and so that can uh can have negative consequences you know un- unhelpful consequences it makes it yeah, dualistic and so that that's one of the the, the um uh difficulties with meditation practices that we can feel that we're following the instructions i'm practicing non-attachment <laughs> but uh it's we can think that that's what we're doing but it can be that the mind is setting up these uh mental structures of of dissociation or aversion or uh, uh, a lack of real attunement to the time the place the situation so it's labeling it non-attachment but it's uh, the actuality is more like a rejection or abstraction that i'm just being the watcher i'm just observing uh, i'm just i'm just knowing this but it isn't just knowing or observing there's a, there's a pushing away and a dissociation which is not liberating it it, it creates a, a a disharmony between yourself and the, and other people in the world and uh, it um, it doesn't have a good result so uh that quality of non-attachment is it's uh a freedom from grasping so the way ajahn chai used to talk about it he said you learn to hold but not cling you pick things up when you need to pick them up and you put them down and you need to put them down you don't cling to them but it doesn't mean not holding so sometimes people misinterpret things that you should never pick anything up you should somehow sort of abstract your mind from from people and things and and he said that's a wrong understanding of non-attachment so we hold things but we learn how not to not to grasp or cling to them but it takes a lot of mindfulness to watch those this those um, and to know those those uh, habits of of attitude uh, take shape and to to know them for what they are because we can feel like we're following instructions or you know so I'm supposed to be not unattached I'm supposed to to not be um clinging to this and oh, I'm I'm doing I'm doing the practice I'm being mindful and uh but you so you feel like you're you're doing what you should be doing or you're following the practice but it's it's based on say obedience to a form or you've got an idea of what is what you're supposed to be doing or that there's a, a kind of switching off and a numbing or dissociation and that uh, it's a uh, and uh, that kind of misunderstanding is leads to a lot of conflict and difficulty I remember um years ago there was a a, a person who was on a uh a retreat a 10 day retreat and he was saying uh, 
you know, Ajahn, uh, it's it's really hard practicing with the family. Um, you know, I, I'm very I'm very sincere. I really put a lot of effort into this. Um, but my family give me a lot of grief because of of me being a Buddhist. And I said, oh, well, you know, why is that? And he said, well, you know, it's just like I'm trying to be mindful uh, around the house and around the home, but yeah, my family get get really upset. And I thought, why would they get upset? And he said, well, you know, like, like at breakfast time, I'm trying to be sort of mindfully, you know, pouring out my cereal and uh, kind of watching the cornflakes coming into the bowl and picking, kind of mindfully picking it. And as he's describing this, uh, and this kind of, I could almost sort of imagine this sort of the breakfast scene, like, Dad, I've got to get to school, you know, stop being mindful, you know, this is good, you're taking forever, just making your cornflakes. And, and, you know, he's sincerely, I'm not trying to, to mock him, but it's like feeling like I'm trying to be mindful of every move, but not attuning to the fact that his kids have got to get on the, on the bus to get to school. And he's, it's his job to get them to the, to the bus stop. And, and uh, so that, uh, that, uh, uh, that attitude of uh, I'm, I'm trying to do the practice or I'm trying to be unattached and, and, and not seeing how that needs to mesh with the, the, the time, the place, the situation. And, and uh, it's like grasping an idea of the practice or an idea of mindfulness or an idea of, of non-attachment and missing that it needs to be meshed and attuned to the living situation that, that we're in. So I tried to explain to him that <laughs> just, just do things at a normal speed and just be aware of the, the, uh, the actions that you're taking. You don't have to, being mindful doesn't mean doing everything in slow motion. Or, or um, Another example was someone who was um, very, uh, <coughs> very uh, um, say, enthusiastic about the, the, the teaching on not-self. And so he'd always refer to, to himself as it. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is somebody that, that um, I met years ago when I went to Buddhist Society Summer School with Lumpur back in the early eighties. And uh, so, yeah, he would. He said, "You know, it's feeling thirsty. Would like a cup of tea." And uh, yeah, I think his wife was was a major spiritually accomplished being, but she obviously had incredible patience. But he sort of refused to use personal pronouns. And, uh, but uh, again, you know, he's very sincere and trying to sort of get things right and do things well. But it's very clunky. And, and um, so uh, enthusiastic or enamored of the, the principle of not self, but it turning into this, this self that's called it. <laughs> instead, of, instead of me or I. So. Okay, so I'll continue for a little bit. So we have evening uh, meditation at 7.30, so I have to be, uh, these days, for the next couple of weeks, so I have to keep my eye on the, the clock. So the, the next section um, is uh, quite dry, and is going through sort of definition of terms, um, the factors of dependent origination, and so I, uh, I don't think I'll read all of this for you. Um, there's many copies of this book around, so you can you can look through this part if you wish to. But it's really just describing the um, the standard twelve links of Ija Sankara Vinyana Namarupa Salatna Pasavedna Tana Upadana Bhava Jati Jara Marna Sokapari Deva Dukkha Domana Supayasa. Um, and so then he goes into the definition of each of those terms. Avijja is ignorance, sankara mental formations, volitional formations, uh, vinyana consciousness. And so uh, I think we've probably heard quite a lot of the um, basic definitions. Um, and uh, so I'll just read the, the more spelled out ones for the sake of this reading. So, avijja, ignorance of suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So, avijja technically is like not seeing the four noble truths, and then right view, samaditi, right, or avijja is uh, based around seeing things in terms of the four noble truths. It doesn't mean not having the information of what the four noble truths are, but actually the, the mode of appreciation of the present experience. 
So that's a definition of, of ignorance, not seeing things in, uh, in those terms. Sankara, uh, bodily volition, kaya sankara, verbal volition, vachi sankara, and mental volition, chitta sankara. And according to the Abhidhamma, meritorious volition and demeritorious volition. Um, vinyana, the six kinds of consciousness, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind consciousness. Nama rupa, so nama means mind, uh, also it's the same as the word for name. So sometimes this is translated as name and form, uh, sometimes mind and body, sometimes mentality or materiality. Well, uh, but uh, So nama is the mind, and that's defined as feeling, vedana, perception, sanya, intention, chetana, uh, contact, pasa, and attention. Manasikara. So those are the sort of the definition of what makes up mind. So feeling, perception, intention, contact, and attention. And then body, rupa, the four great elements, uh, earth, water, fire, and wind, and the form that depends on these four great elements. Salayatana, the six sense spaces, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Pasa, the six kinds of contact, by way of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Vedana, the six kinds of feeling or sensation. Feeling arising from contact by way of the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. Tanha, the six kinds of craving. Craving for forms, craving for sounds, craving for smells, craving for tastes, craving for tactile objects and craving for mind objects. Uh, Dhamma tanha. Uh, also in the, the, um, the, the, the Buddha's first discourse along with um, karma tanha, the, the craving for sense pleasure, the other two, uh, uh, kinds, more subtle kinds of craving, bhava tanha, the craving to be or craving for existence, um, and vibhava tanha, the, the craving to, to not be, for annihilation, for, for non-existence, to not feel, to not, not be. Uh, number nine, upadana, the four kinds of grasping, uh, kamupadana, grasping sense, uh, sense pleasure, Form, sound, smells, tastes, and tactile objects. Dittu Padana, grasping onto views, ideals, theories, and beliefs. Silabat Upadana, grasping onto rules and practices, believing that in, that, uh, in themselves they lead to spiritual purity. And also, um, clinging to conventions and, and, um, uh, um, standard behaviors. And then Attavad Upadana, grasping onto self creating a false idea of the self and clinging to this idea and, as I was saying, personal stories. Bhava, the three spheres, technically the three spheres of existence. So, karma bhava, um, the, the sensory heavens and the, the material world. The uh, rupa bhava, the fine material heavens, or the lower Brahma realms. And then arupa bhava, the upper Brahma realms. Then jati, the birth of the five aggregates arising uh, of the sense spheres, the ayatana, and alternately the arising of these various phenomena. So that's uh, with respect to dependent origination in a single mind moment. And then the last one, 12, jara marana, jara, aging, weakening of the faculties, and marana, death, breaking up of the aggregates an end of the life faculty, jivatindriya. Alternatively, the degeneration and dissolution of these various phenomena. So that's death in terms of dependent origination in a, a single mind moment. When a thought comes to an end or a feeling comes to an end, there's a, that's the, the ending of a condition. So that that was also comes under the jara marana. So the, the breaking up of a, of a mental image or a sensation or a, a thought that also comes under the the um, the category of, of death. Then the next part, he, he goes into a bit more detailed uh, explanation of each of the of, of the twelve links. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, with respect to the three, so the, the the first of all to the three lifetime or the many lifetimes model. So before I get into that. Um, then any questions, thoughts, reflections? Alan, you're scratching your head rather than putting your hand up. <laughs> Sold to the man in the back row. <laughs>
Well, maybe I'll, I'll uh, leave it there before we're getting on to the general explanations because it's it's seven o'clock and um, well, yeah, it's about seven. So leave it um, for today, and then we'll carry on with a bit more. Again, this is all a little bit technical, um, but uh, that's the way the book is. <laughs> so uh, let's leave it there for today, and we'll carry on with more detailed definitions of the various elements uh, tomorrow. Andamayang <coughs> <coughs>